The reading this morning can be found on page 1154. It's 1 Corinthians 15 and we're starting at verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. For each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Thanks, Susan, and uh, good morning again. Hey, um, just to let you know, I'm going to go for around about 25, 26, 27 minutes in that time. If you need to use um, a change room for your kids, through that second door there is where you need to go. Uh, could you have your Bibles open or keep them open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? That would be real helpful. I'll pray for us very briefly and then we shall get underway. Heavenly Father, God, be with us all over the next 25 minutes or so. Speak to us through your scriptures that we might love the Lord Jesus with all our hearts. Amen. I wonder if you've ever thought about what it's like to live under a king or queen. I mean like a genuine monarch who had absolute authority over his or her subjects. Have you ever thought what it would be like to live in a society in which whatever the king or queen said... That was the undisputed law. I mean, it really is quite different to our modern idea of the monarchy, uh, in which the royals are really just presentables. They're kind of ornamental um, showpieces. Now, don't get me wrong, I really like them. I like the Queen. I think the new batch of royals are kind of young and spunky and eminently likeable. I mean, they're handsome and they're articulate and they're generous and they're good-humoured. All of them, William, Kate, Harry, Meghan, eminently likeable people. I'm not exactly sure why Harry and Meghan are going to Dubbo though. Are you? Sydney, Melbourne, Dubbo. I mean, you'd have to feel ripped off if you were Adelaide, wouldn't you? Then again, I guess you always feel ripped off if you're Adelaide, don't you? 
I'm sure um, wherever they go, they're well received though, but we like them as ornaments, don't we? Um, don't really take them seriously. We're not subject to their authority. Nor do we think of our political leaders as absolute monarchs. Uh, my sons call Bill Shorten egghead and Peter Dutton potato head. Not a lot of respect there. And really, after all, we voted them in and we can vote them out if they don't get rid of themselves. Now, that's how democracy works, isn't it? They're more subject to us than we are to them. So when we talk about the God who reigns forever, we, we don't have a natural framework to understand it. What does it mean for God to reign? What does it mean for him to reign forever? Well, that's what we're thinking about today. And I think it's full of good news for those of us who trust in Christ in a, in a tumultuous world in which we might be prone to fear or in a super busy world where we might be prone to distraction. So whether you're more likely to be afraid or whether you're more likely to have fading devotion, today really has something to say to us all. It is, of course, a fitting way to finish our little series called The Believer's Guide to God uh, because we started with who God is, the God who is three, Father, Son and Spirit existing eternally. And then we tracked his activity among us, uh, the God who creates and then the one who promises the one who is with us in the person of his Son and his Spirit, and the one who judges us as well as saves before finishing today with his eternal, everlasting reign. Well, what does it look like for God to reign, like a genuine king or queen? And how does he reign forever? And what exactly does that mean for us now? Well, I want to start today by suggesting to you from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, that God's eternal reign begins with Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection begins God's eternal reign. It begins with the raising of Christ from the dead and then his ascension to the right hand of God. And we're going to see how 1 Corinthians 15 fleshes this out in just a moment. But there is, isn't there, a very strong sense in which God has always reigned from even before the creation of the world. He's always reigned from heaven. Psalm 33 is a lovely poem that our small groups are going to have a chance to look at in the week ahead. And it talks about the reign of God in creation and the reign of God in the history of the world. It says he, he gathers the waters of the seas into jars. I mean, he can control the chaotic oceans as though he were filling up water bottles. Now that's authority, isn't it? From heaven the Lord looks down, it says, and he sees all mankind. He considers everything they do. He thwarts the scheming plans of the nations. But the purposes of his heart stand firm across all generations. You see, he's always reigned. Further reigned in the history of his Old Testament people, the Israelites, both when they walked with him and he acted on their behalf. And then when they rejected him, and they experienced his disciplining hand. But really we see the reign of God up close and personal when the Lord Jesus walked upon earth, don't we? The opening chapters of Mark's Gospel I think are instructive. And once again, if you're in a small group, you'll have a chance to look at this during the week ahead. But you see the authority over the first disciples as they immediately leave their fishing nets to follow Jesus. And then we see his authority over demons and disease as he heals many people of all kinds of ailments and casts out demons. He's got authority to forgive sins, which we learn in the, the story of the healing of the paralytic in chapter 2. And then he reigns over the wind and the waves as he calms the storm because it's not just God in heaven 
who controls the chaotic waters as though he were filling up water bottles. Jesus did that too. He even raises a little girl back from the dead, back to life, reigning over death. And all these incidents, whether you read them at the start of Mark's Gospel or in one of the other Gospels, gives us a glimpse of the eternal reign of God. Not just that Jesus has authority, an extraordinary authority that amazed those who were around him, but also a glimpse of what his eternal reign or kingdom would be like. It would be one of compassion. It would be one of healing and truth and protection and life itself. Just raise your hand if you know who this chap is. Okay, uh, his name is Dave Grohl. He's the front man of probably the biggest rock band in the world. They are called the Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters. If you don't know who they are, just drop it in conversation with young people that uh, you have interactions with and you'll get instant credibility. Foo Fighters. He was also the drummer of uh, the grunge band Nirvana. Has anyone heard of Nirvana? Raise your hand. Okay, good. Some people that were born in uh, the 1900s. Excellent. And uh, without exaggeration, they changed the musical landscape in uh, the 1990s. It's hard to think of a more famous rock musician than Dave Grohl. And apparently he's a really nice guy as well. So that's lovely. That's his mum, Virginia Grohl. Uh, she's just released a book called, uh, really about raising a, a rock prodigy. It's called From Cradle to the Stage. And uh, in the book, she tells the story of when she first glimpsed the future for her son. They were driving along in a, in a Ford Maverick, classic American muscle car, on a hot summer day in 1975, when Carly Simon's You're So Vain came on the radio. Now, they would always sing in the car, and Virginia was kind of belting it out um, above the booming roar of the open windows, uh, until the point in the song where Mick Jagger's, I, I presume you've heard of Mick Jagger, his gravelly voice joins the chorus, and then their voices split into harmony for the first time. Mum Virginia started singing kind of Mick's lower line as the young Dave sang Carly Simon's kind of higher lead vocal. And Dave would later say, without realising it, we were harmonising for the first time and my heart lit up. Well, it might have, Dave, but, but your mum, she saw a glimpse of the future in that signal moment now i reckon what that's what the little events in the start of jesus ministry reveal what the future what the eternal reign of god would be like they were an early glimpse but friends even more than his life it actually is his resurrection from the dead uh, from his sacrificial death and then his ascension to heaven, to God, that begins the eternal reign of God. And it is the, the Apostle Paul who takes us to the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. I hope you've got it there. Uh, it's a very long chapter. It's devoted to discussing the significance of Jesus' resurrection because it seems like the Corinthian Christians had forgotten its importance. So in the earlier verses of the reading today, the Apostle argues why the resurrection of Christ is the definitive event that proves not only will those of us who trust in Christ also be raised to eternal life, but also that God will reign eternally over all things, including sin and death. Let, read along with me from verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, he says, and so is your faith. Then down in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. 
then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now he's arguing from the negative. This is how the logic goes. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, the preaching of the gospel is useless and so is Christian faith. Why is that? Well, it's because if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we are still in our sins, which means we still face the permanent sentence of death. Now, death really is the ultimate opponent to God's eternal reign. How can God rule eternally over all things if people still die? I mean, death stands in opposition to the author of life, does it not? Apparently threatening his reign. Except that in his own body, the Lord Jesus Christ has already conquered death. I mean, if Jesus stayed dead after his sacrifice on the cross, which we've just sung about, in our place for our sins, then we too would stay dead. In fact, if Christ was not raised from the dead, all those who have already fallen asleep, says the Apostle Paul, that is, all those who have already died are also lost. They're already experiencing the permanent sentence of death which in turn means that if we are only hoping for this life, we are complete losers of all people the most to be pitied. In other words, without Jesus' resurrection, there is no future kingdom to look forward to. Jesus does not reign now or ever. His earthly life was not a, a, a glimpse of the future glorious reign of God. It was a fleeting illusion, long gone. So when Paul turns to argue positively in verse 20, he really can be quite confident. Read along with me, verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the, f- uh, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, Christ's resurrection is the definitive act, the first fruits, the beginning of the resurrection age, the beginning of the eternal reign of God, even over death. And just as the first fruit in a harvest guarantees all the fruit that's going to follow in the crop, so does Jesus' physical resurrection from death, witnessed by hundreds of eyewitnesses, also guarantee our own resurrection from physical death should we trust in him. All that is inevitable. All that is certain because Christ's resurrection are the first fruits. And it begins God's forever and eternal reign. As the, uh, the passage continues, we see secondly that God's eternal reign will only be complete. It'll only be fully realized. It'll only be perfected at the end of time. Jesus' return perfects God's eternal reign. It was glimpsed in the life of Jesus It began with the resurrection of Jesus. It will be perfected at the end of human history when Jesus comes again. Now, I'll grant you up until this point, our passage for the day hasn't really used kingdom language, has it? But as it moves into verse 23, it's very clear we're talking about kingdoms. We're talking about reigns. Read along with me. Uh, In Christ will be made alive, verse 23, but each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
You see, we're talking about the order, or he's talking about the order in which things will take place to usher in the eternal reign of God. Christ is raised from the dead. Check, already happened. Then he will come again whenever that is, at some stage in the future, near or far, and we too will rise should we trust in him. Then the end will come, meaning the end of human history, the end of the world as we know it, the end of every spiritual dominion, power and authority that sets itself up over and against God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The end will come. Now, I must say, I really don't know how any of you feel about boxing. Some people call it the uh, sweet science. Others think that it's legalised assault offered up as entertainment on a pay-per-view basis. And I find myself, I must admit, shifting from one view to the other. At times I'm mesmerised by the contest. Other times I'm slightly appalled at myself that I find the violence thrilling. Nevertheless, in, in any great fight, there's one punch that really determines the outcome of the contest. It could be a right hook or a left jab or an absolute haymaker. And you just know after that punch that even if the other fighter stays on his feet, which they often do, that that punch has effectively ended the contest. Let's just, for the sake of it, call it the knockout punch. Even though the other guy uh, continues, barely balancing, eyes swollen over, come on, I can still fight, let me at him. You know that that knockout punch has secured victory. But you wouldn't call it a killer blow because the fight is still continuing. I, I think that's a, a little like that here. Jesus' resurrection is the knockout punch. It is the definitive act which has secured victory over death. But it's not the killer blow just yet because death is still in the fight and it lands a real punch every time someone dies. The resurrection of Jesus is the knockout punch. But the killer blow occurs at his return from the right hand of God when we who trust in Christ will rise from our physical death unto our, our bright and splendid eternities. When the power of death lies motionless on the canvas. When even the fear of death is gone. When the last great enemy that has apparently threatened the reign of God since the Garden of Eden will no longer exist. And when he has destroyed death with all finality, Jesus will have put everything, every enemy under his feet, subduing it. And his work of salvation at that time will be complete. And he will hand the kingdom, the whole kingdom, back over to the Father. Back over to the Father who had at first entrusted it to the Son from which time it says God will be all in all, verse 28. In other words, everything will be as it should be. The son's work of salvation that began with his birth and life and then reached a crescendo with his death and resurrection will be complete and he'll hand the kingdom back over to the Father and happily subject himself again to the Father. We tend to say Jesus has destroyed death by his resurrection and reigns as king forevermore. Today, we've learned we need to nuance that just a little. Jesus has defeated death by his resurrection he will destroy it finally upon his return after which time he reigns and so will we by the way if we trust in him but under the eternal reign of the father and then everything will be as it should be within the godhead himself within us as we experience our own resurrection from physical death 
And then within all creation, as all enemies, even death, are destroyed. And so as we think about what this might mean for us, and uh, as we wrap up the series as a whole, I think there's no better place to land than the very last page of the Bible, Revelation 22. Got it up here. The Apostle John says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They'll see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. What a lovely picture of what it will be like. Not necessarily a picture of what it will look like, but a lovely picture of what it will be like within the eternal reign of God. After human history is complete, after we who trust in him have been raised from physical death to eternal life, after the full forces of sin and death have been finally destroyed, after the Son has handed the kingdom back over to the Father. Now, I think there are a few features worth noting. Uh, have a look. It seems that life flows from God himself, who sits as you'd expect a king on a throne in the middle of the city. And in scenes that are highly reminiscent of the great prophets of old, like Ezekiel and, and uh, Joel and Zechariah, the river of life proceeds from the Father and the Son. Of course, we know from the Lord Jesus that the Living water is none other than God's Holy Spirit, that great life-giving Spirit that proceeds from the Father and the Son. And life in its great abundance is depicted not just from the living water, but also from the tree of life, which stretches over both banks of the river. Did you notice there's just one tree in this garden? The tree of temptation from the first garden in Eden is no more. It's just a symbolic way of saying there will be no temptation in the age to come. And no curse, and no night with the terrors that the night symbolizes. But there will be God, and there will be Jesus, that is the Lamb, and we will see Him, and we will belong to Him, and we will serve Him without frustration, without hesitation, without weariness, and without a moment's dullness forever. Now, friends, if you trust in Christ, that is where we are heading taking our place in the perfection of God's eternal reign. Should we trust in Him in the few fleeting years of life we have upon this planet? Why wouldn't you want to be a part of that? So what is the Apostle Paul's explanation in 1 Corinthians 15 and John's vision in Revelation 22 mean for us in the few fleeting years we have left in this life? How do we wait well? for the eternal reign of God. Early in his ministry, the story goes, the great American preacher Billy Graham arrived in a small uh, American town to preach. He wanted to mail a letter. So he asked a young boy in the street, he said, where's the post office? And when the boy had told him, Billy thanked him and said, listen, if you come to the Baptist church tonight, I'll be telling everyone how to get to God's heavenly kingdom. To which the boy goes, 
Yeah, I'm not going to come. You don't even know the way to the post office. <laughs> you know, when it comes to thinking about how to wait well for the eternal reign of God, the, the, the first encouragement is actually that's precisely the place where we're heading. And friends, you know the way to get there. It is, of course, by trusting in Christ. And because you have faith in Christ, who now rules from heaven, that actually means we need not fear. God will rule forever. That means we trust in him, we need not fear. When the nations of the world plot and scheme, we need not fear because God's eternal kingdom is secure. You worried about Trump and North Korea? Let me tell you, I'm worried about Putin and the vast Chinese regime. I think their machinations and maneuverings are extremely concerning from what I can see. But I also know that Jesus reigns from heaven right now. That's where we need him to be. And he is slowly subduing all enemies and powers until he ushers in the kingdom of God in its magnificent completeness. And nothing can change that. The proof of which is that Jesus has already conquered death personally in his own body as witnessed by hundreds of eyewitnesses. In other words, the plan is already in motion. He's already broken the seal of the power of sin and death. And Mr. Trump and Mr. Putin and the vast Chinese military and economy cannot do that. They simply can't. You know, even when the fear of death, even when the power of death casts its gloomy, uninvited shadow over us, we can be rightly sad worried and concerned but not afraid in the ultimate sense Jesus has commenced the eternal reign of God from heaven where we need him to be not here restricted to a single place at any point in time and he's bringing it to completeness after he tramples death and sin and temptation and curse and frustration and pain and weariness with all finality Friends, I'm saying that God will rule forever. And that means we need not fear. That which at its worst can merely take our bodies temporarily. And because he will rule forever, we need not fade either. We need not fear. We need not fade. By which I mean lose patience and perseverance. Didn't you find that Paul's explanation in 1 Corinthians 15, and perhaps even more so John's vision in Revelation 22, gave you a shot in the arm, hit of adrenaline, a burst of hope that encourages you to keep going? These passages say, if we trust in Christ, we have a great future to look forward to, and indeed a great inheritance to anticipate. Is it too much to say we will inherit the universe by the grace of God? Does not that great hope motivate you to store up treasures in heaven by serving him with all your heart rather than treasures here? Does it not release us from either the distracted or the desperate ways we devote ourselves to achieving here, to acquiring here, to experiencing things here in this life? This might be the most controversial thing I say all day, but here goes. It actually doesn't matter if you don't own property in Sydney. Doesn't matter if you never go on another overseas trip. Not when you know 
where we're going if we trust in Christ. So I would like you just to think in your own life, in what ways do you serve God and others in your work, in your service, in your ministry, in the rest of your life? Do you realise that's actually part of the way that Jesus exercises his reign now as we work well and witness to him in the power of the Spirit? And so can I encourage you to do that with all your heart, with all that you've got? And for those of us who might be battling on in life at the moment and and some of us are experiencing great difficulties, maybe even persecution, rather than distraction, still we need not fade. We have been reminded that we will reign with Christ, even if we're defeated in this life. We know that Jesus sits enthroned with the Father because of his resurrection. And do you hear Revelation's encouragement to Christian people to persevere, promising that those who do will join the the Father and the Son, enthroned in the new creation, his glorious eternal kingdom, in the few fleeting years we have left in this life we need not fear and we need not fade for Jesus is bringing in the eternal reign of God the plan is already in motion it has already begun truly friends we worship a God who reigns forever let's pray to him now